Morning, everyone. It's great to be together again. Please turn back in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you're visiting with us today, we're thrilled to see you. Thank you so much for joining with us. And you come as we take a second bite at the cherry that is verses 4 to 10 of 1 Peter 2. Last week, we looked particularly at verse 4 and then verse 6 to 8, where we saw the Lord Jesus as the living stone, the cornerstone, and to those who reject him, the stumbling stone. But today we're going to go back to this section and let me read it with us just now. And then we're going to particularly focus today on verse 5 and 9 and 10. So let's read and hear the word of God. 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We'll stop there for the moment, but I'm going to read other parts of that passage, and it would be helpful to have it open there. What Peter has done is move us uh, through some pictures over these last couple of Sunday mornings. We saw the picture of the the family aspect of church life in chapter 1, verse 22, through to chapter 2, verse 3. And then we turned last Sunday to what we might call the foundational nature of church life, the Lord Jesus as the living stone, as the cornerstone. And today we kind of move to what we might call the functional pictures of the local church. And as we focus on verse 5, and then we'll get to verses 9 and 10. I wonder, having read it this morning, is your head already slightly reeling with all this talk of spiritual houses, temples, priests, sacrifices, and all the rest? And if that is the case, let me offer you two uh, a reassurance in two directions. Number one, as we read this passage, Peter is not adding unnecessary complication. Rather, he's bringing essential clarification. That's important to know, isn't it? He's not working on his PhD thesis. He's being clear. He's helping us to grasp things that otherwise we wouldn't grasp. And secondly, his aim is not to leave us stumped, but stunned. I love this morning the way Laura had us practicing our (gasps) our amazement. And although we might not gasp in like that, there ought to be a sense in which we're stunned by what we see afresh in the Word of God this morning. As Peter uses the picture of the Old Testament temple and the priests to help us grasp something absolutely astounding about the nature of what it is to be the church of Jesus Christ today. So let's get to it. I said to Bruce, I wasn't going to waggle on the tee for the golfers this morning. I wasn't going to do the penguin thing. I was just going to get right into it. Sometimes I like to waggle on the tee with a long introduction, but here we are, three minutes, 18 into it, and we're going. First point this morning, the illustrations that Peter draws. And that these are the two big things today, the illustrations and then the implications. We'll come to them later on. But think of these illustrations that Peter draws. Verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Now, the picture here is of God like a master builder. You may have seen this if you've gone to uh, the Lake District or parts of northern England where they still do dry stone diking and the 
genius of the builders of these walls is to find the perfect stone that's the right shape and the right weight and the right consistency to go into a certain space to, to create a certain strength in the construction. And that's the picture here. God, like a master builder, selecting the ideal stone for this building-defining purpose that this stone is going to fulfill. And so he has positioned his son in the building he has constructed as the chosen and precious cornerstone, verse 4, the stone on which everything else is built, the stone from which everything else takes its line. And now in verse 5, other building materials are added to the picture. So verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves who've come to him, you yourselves this morning, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So now Peter, Peter's readers, then and now, are in the picture. He's writing to Christian believers in the Lord Jesus, whose lives have been transformed by him, and from whom we have received life. And because he is the living stone, we also like living stones. Our life eternal derives from our relationship with him. And we find that we as believers, verse 5, are being built up as a spiritual house. Now this is where we begin to discover how radical is God's plan for the church. So many people think that the church of Jesus Christ is, as I've said before, the most boring thing in offer. And there is a danger that we just think it's, it's just kind of yada, 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 same old thing all the time. But it is, what God is doing is a stunningly radical thing if we can see it this morning. Because as the camera angle pans out here, we begin to see what this building is in which the Lord Jesus is the cornerstone, in which those who belong to him are living stones. And Peter now reveals God's plan is to build up his people as a spiritual house, that is, as a, as a temple, as a house of God. Now, anyone who knew their Old Testament as they understood this letter at first, would have remembered God's gracious desire to dwell among his people. And you might know, and certainly our boys and girls know in the Sunday school, as we've been reminded recently of what they're studying, that in the early days when Israel was a, a relatively small community, living a nomadic lifestyle as they moved around from place to place, the Lord God was known to live among them in, can you believe it, a tent. They all dwelt in tents and God had a tent. It's astounding how gracious and condescending he was to come and live among his people in a tent. And Moses, as you know, would go to the tent so he could speak to God. That was their concept of that kind of place. And God's people, Israel, had the constant reassurance of his presence with them. And what a remarkable blessing that was to his people. But then when the people of Israel grew massively and when they settled permanently in the one place, King David by then wanted to make a stone temple. He said, it's not right. I'm living in this fantastic house made of stones and wood and the Ark of the Covenant is still in a, in a tent. We, we need a permanent building for God. And he wanted to build a stone temple for God's dwelling. David gathered the funds, he purchased the land, but it was actually his son Solomon who oversaw the building of the temple. And that temple was so incredible, so vast, that it was one of the ancient wonders of the ancient world. 
And again in that place, God graciously made his presence known among his people. Now, I mentioned that this morning because if Peter's readers had been in Jerusalem, they could have gone to what was by then the reconstructed temple and they could have seen it still at that point in the final days of its full operation as a center of Jewish religious life. And perhaps some of them had been there as Jews before they came to Christ. And they would have considered it and counted it an awesome privilege to go to that temple and to see the priests at work and to know that this was the place where they believed God's dwelling was. So can you imagine how utterly staggering it would have been for them to read Peter's letter and for these verses to sink in? You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Don't you think there was a... <gasps> In the meeting that morning when the elder read that line out. Now the Lord Jesus had by this stage already forecast the destruction of the physical temple in, in Jerusalem. And that was about to happen in AD 70. I don't think it had yet happened as Peter wrote but it was about to happen. The Lord Jesus had stipulated that as far as that physical temple was concerned, not one actual stone would be left on another. That's the language he uses. But God has another building project. And every living stone would be built up into a spiritual house. And so as we think of the illustrations that Peter draws, there are two things that we can gather from them this morning. And the first is this. We are the holy place in which God is present. We are the holy place in which God is present. Now, that may sound like a kind of clumsy way to put it. Wouldn't it be better, you might say, to say we are the holy people in whom God is present? And that would be precisely correct. That is really the, the nub of the matter. But I want us to feel the full force of this radical redefinition of the temple. I suspect that Christian believers have always realized the presence of the Lord is with them. But Peter is saying more than that here. His point is that though our God is omnipresent and is everywhere, there is no other place on this planet that is the place of God's dwelling other than his church his people. There is no building, there is no temple where God dwells other than in and among his people. So we are the holy place in which God is present. We were just singing there about that day when we will be before his throne in glory and one of the lines was, and there we'll find our home and we'll be truly home. And Peter's readers were elect exiles. They were away from the true home as you and I are away from our true home now until we see the Lord Jesus face to face or until he comes again and takes us to be with him. But there is a sense in which God has already found his eternal home among his people. And that's the experience of being in his church today. He doesn't live in temples. He doesn't live in buildings made by hands. He indwells the lives of all Christians and his presence is guaranteed where two or three meet under a tree. 
in his name? Or were two or three thousand gathered in some vast assembly? Look at this verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So Peter has told his readers that in terms of God's building project in the world, the Lord Jesus is the cornerstone. They, by the relationship with him, are themselves living stones in a living temple. And what Peter says chimes perfectly with the rest of the New Testament. You might want to turn to these. You might just want to listen. Listen, first of all, to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you, and the you there is plural, so we would say use, which is a useful way. It's not good grammar, but it's a useful way of making it clear it's plural. Do you not know that yous are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Can you get your head around that? If anyone destroys God's temple, meaning God's church, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Isn't that astonishing? Ephesians chapter 2. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, verse 21, in whom the whole structure has been joined together and it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And listen to this, verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. Surely there's a little bit of intake there. A dwelling place for God. By the Spirit. That's the picture. We are the holy place in which God is present, His people, our lives. He indwells our lives and He's among His people as we gather in His name. But now the picture changes and Peter takes us inside the temple. Where under the old covenant, of course, we would have seen the Levitical priests, those descended away from Levi, part of a family line uniquely set apart, trained, authorized to maintain the worship of the temple as they made sacrifices for sins and guilt offerings and thank offerings and all the rest. So what were his readers expecting as he takes them in this word picture inside the temple? They might have been expecting him to develop the temple illustration by saying, all of you comprise God's temple. All of you are stones in this temple, just as was the case in Israel. But some of you then comprise the priesthood. But that's not what he says. He continues to address all believers, verse 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You yourselves, all of you to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we are the holy place in which God is present. And the second picture is that we are the holy priests with whom God is pleased. Now remember, all we're doing at the moment is, is considering the illustration that Peter's drawing on. We're going to come to the implications just in a moment. But don't miss the scale of the privilege that Peter wants his readers to feel. 
We noticed last week that verses 6 to 8 support verse 4. And we'll see this week that verses 9 to 10 support verse 5. But it's so interesting that 4 is all about Jesus, 5 is all about Christian believers, and Peter deliberately interleaves the two, Jesus and his people, because they are so interconnected. He even does it in the way that he structures his argument in this section. So glance at verse 9. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He is writing to Christian believers from both the Jewish background and from the Gentile pagan backgrounds, all of whom have come to know Christ. And now the formerly divided communities, which was worse than Rangers Celtic, worse than than, uh, Sunni Shia, worse than or as, at least as bad as any major division we have in our culture and world, the Jew-Gentile division, they're now united and they share the staggering privileges of Old Testament Israel. God chose Israel from among all the nations and made them his own. And now Peter says he uses that language for the church. And they weren't by any means all from a Jewish heritage. There may be some of us this morning who actually are from, have a Jewish heritage in our family, but I guess we're in the minority and it makes no difference. And the point of verse 9 is that what used to be the unique privilege of the priests of God's old covenant people is now the privilege of God's united new covenant people, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So every believer is like an essential stone in the construction of the spiritual temple in which God dwells. And every believer can now participate in the service in which formerly only the nominated, authorized, priestly caste were able to engage. The Old Testament Jewish priests represented the people before God. The high priest alone was able to enter into the what was called the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence was said essentially to dwell within the temple precincts. And he was only able to do so once a year after a huge amount of preparation of himself. But don't lose the wonder of this. Because of what the Lord Jesus achieved by his death, on the cross as he bore our sins, because of what he now accomplishes by his life, every believer lives permanently in the presence of the Lord. We live permanently in the equivalent of the Old Testament, holy of holies in the center of the temple precinct. Jesus died for us and lives to intercede for us. Therefore, no priest external to us is ever needed to bring us to God, to go and represent us before God, to go and make sacrifices in our place because of what the Lord Jesus has achieved once and for all by his death on Calvary. So the picture is what we call the priesthood of all believers. It's a picture of all of us who are in Christ enjoying the permanent privileges that used to be the reserve, the preserve only of the Jewish priests. And this is massive. And we'll unpack a little of this when we come to the implications in a moment. 
But then another major departure from the Old Testament practice, when you look at there at verse 5, where a, where a, a, a priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices, not ritual sacrifices, by his redeeming death on the cross, by his resurrection from the, the dead, the Lord Jesus has fulfilled all that the millions of Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to. And so now we make spiritual sacrifices, says Peter. Now let's flesh this out for a moment and let me give you another couple of biblical references to help us see this. Think, for example, of a very well-known one, Romans chapter 12, when Paul moves from all the uh, foundation laying in the, the letter to the practical applications. Chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or possibly rational worship. You see the temple language there. You see how it's applied not to the temple anymore, not to the special priests anymore, but to everyone who's in Christ by faith. Do not be conformed, verse 2, to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So a spiritual sacrifice, as far as Romans 12 is concerned, is a physical sacrifice and it's a practical sacrifice. We don't sacrifice ourselves by lying on the altar and dying, but we sacrifice ourselves as we live for the Lord. We wake up in the morning, we remember what the Lord Jesus has done for us, and we say, I'm yours, Lord, every part of my life. Help me to live for you today. Help me to not be pressed into the mold that rejects you in the world. Help me to be transformed by my thinking. That's what it means to live as a sacrifice. Or think of Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13 verse 15. Through him, that is through Jesus then, says the writer, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Hebrews 13, if you're noting it down, verse 15. Now let's pause there midway through the verse. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. How on earth are we to obey that verse? We love to come here and offer up our praise to God as we gather here and we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs such as we've been doing this morning. But how are we to do that continually? Are we to sing in shifts day and night? Well, that's not been our practice, so... How do we do it? No, we read on in this verse and we find that this sacrifice of praise has much more of the whole week in view than just Sunday singing. Hebrews 13, 15. Through Jesus then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That means that God is honored and praised when the words that come from our lips acknowledge his name. And to acknowledge his name is not just to say it, but is to acknowledge who he is, his essential identity. It's to acknowledge his lordship, the fruit of lips that live with a consistency that Jesus is Lord. 
of everything in our lives, even when I'm not speaking about it. So when we speak truthfully and lovingly and encouragingly, and when we have the courage to acknowledge his name in a culture that routinely blasphemes his name, then that's fruit. It's not singing. That's the sacrifice of praise to God. And then look at verse 16 of Hebrews 13. For more ways, continually to offer praise. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You see, we're the holy priests with whom God is pleased. That's where I got the language from. You not neglecting to do good, doing all the good you can in his name for his glory where you see it, you sharing what you have, not amassing more and more, not taking what others have and rip off Britain. Everybody's used to that experience. You can barely live a day in our culture without somebody gouging something out of your pocket. But not neglecting what you do, sharing what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. I wonder, can you see how radical this change is from ritual sacrifice made by an authorized priesthood in an actual temple to you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And of course, that's exactly what Peter's acknowledging down in verse 9 of our passage. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession we've looked at, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now again, think how revolutionary this is, sisters and brothers. Unlike the old covenant priesthood who were seen as set apart from the ordinary people, who came from the pedigree line of Levi, and not all the money and influence in the world could have got you into the priesthood if you weren't part of that family. And on occasions, if you know your Old Testament, sometimes when a priest wasn't available, somebody else stepped in to do the priestly job and it didn't go well. That wasn't for anybody to do in the Old Testament. <laughs> but now we are qualified as priests to proclaim the excellencies of our God. And the thing that qualifies us is what? Is the fact that we were in darkness and he has called us out. How radical is that? Who are those to whom God has entrusted this priesthood? Every believer. What makes them a believer? The realization that we were in the darkness. And God called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What a transformation. The Lord brought us from darkness to light, from the power of sin to God, from death to life, and he made us part of his living temple, members of his permanent priesthood. And that's why, from the day of Pentecost onwards, you never find Christians sacrificing in the temple again. And you never find in the New Testament Christian leaders in the local church 
or in groupings of churches, you never find them referring to themselves as priests. Listen to Charles Hodge, the 19th century Princeton uh, theologian, a great favorite of yours, I'm sure. But listen to this. He says, every title of honor is lavished upon Christian ministers in the New Testament. They're called overseers, pastors, elders, teachers, servants, or deacons that would be, stewards, watchmen, heralds, workmen, but never priests. He goes on, as the sacred writers, those who wrote the Bible, were Jews to whom nothing was more familiar than the word priest. The fact that they never once used the word or any of its cognates in reference to servants of the gospel is little less than miraculous. It's one of those cases where the silence of scripture speaks volumes. Well, that brings us to the implications that we can draw from these illustrations. There are three. I'm only going to use two this morning. And the first is this. The first is this. The church is God's people, not a building we meet in. Now, in the interest of absolute honesty, I am a self-confessed pedant in terms of drawing distinction between the church and the building the church meets in. I expect everyone knows that the church is the people, not the building. But we rarely speak that way. And I, I've got a buckle in my head about this. So I, I'll admit that to you. I am a pedant. A few years ago, I was preaching in a church I belonged to and was about to get up. And the guy who was just leading the meeting was doing some announcements immediately before I stood up to preach. And he was giving information about the church outing the following Saturday. And that brother encouraged everyone to be there on time at 9.45 at the latest because the coaches will leave the church at 10 a.m. sharp, he said. The coaches will leave the church. Now, with my tiny mind, I couldn't resist when I got up asking the question, what was the point in hiring the coaches if they're going to leave the church at 10 in the morning? How are we going to get to our desired destination if the church is going to be left behind? And, of course, there was all kinds of groans, not least from my long-suffering wife, who's who's heard all this for nearly 40 years now. And I think I created a fair bit of confusion about when the buses were going to come and when they were leaving and who was going to be on them and all the rest of it. I don't think I did anybody any favors. The coaches will leave the church. Will they? A bit pointless. And since coming here, someone quite rightly pointed out that I might have confused everyone when I speak about this building as a whole. Because that's the hall that, this is the church. But in all honesty, I think there is a case for making a a distinction between the church and the building we meet in. Because of what we've seen this morning. We should make a distinction, not least because if we don't, the danger is we won't be long in attaching some false spiritual significance to buildings. That we'll regard this part of our fine buildings here in a way that we feel differently about to the parts that are through the back. And that can happen very easily. We've all heard 
probably as we were growing up, we've all told to be quiet because we're in God's house. Or sometimes we talk about this part as the sanctuary. So when we use that kind of phraseology, when we talk about it as God's house or the sanctuary, we're attaching a spiritual significance to it quite innocently, but nonetheless, with some significance, we're attaching that spiritual connotation that Peter helps us to see as the opposite of what it is. It's not God's house. God does not live in buildings made by hands but he does dwell in his people, among his people who gather in his name. Cathedrals are interesting to visit. They are architecturally impressive, massively so. But whatever feeling people report experiencing in these buildings, it's not God's presence. He's no more present there or here than he is with any one of the Lord's people and in any assembly, small or large, of the Lord's people. So if you want to know the Lord's presence, you don't need to go to a building, but you do need to meet with his people. And since his people meet in this building, this is a good place to come to experience God's presence. But not for the sake of the building. Now the function of our building is very important. It gives the church a comfortable, dry, warm place to gather to hear the word of God. This is an important building because that's its function. It serves the church and we're greatly indebted to those who look after the property for us. But it is categorically not God's house. Not his sanctuary. It is not the church. The church is God's people. Not a building they meet in. And secondly, and finally, by way of implication, the church is a priesthood, so it does not have a priesthood. I wonder, can you see the distinction there? It's fairly straightforward. If everyone who belongs to Christ is able now in him to be in God's presence and seek fresh cleansing from sin and blessing on their life and can live in such a way that our lives are ple a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord, then we need no priest to intercede, no priest to make an approach to God on our behalf, no priest to make an offering for us. So the church is a priesthood and therefore doesn't have a priesthood in terms of a separate category of priest. And of course, in our circles, we have never had those we regarded as priests. We, as Peter tells us in chapter 5, and we'll come to it, God willing, we have elders who are to shepherd the flock of God by the ministry of his word, and we have deacons who take on the wide-ranging administration of church life. And we are immensely grateful to God for their gift and their energy and their love of the Lord and they, as they do so. But these are not priestly roles. So, for example, although our traditions have tended to order things in such a way that it is the elders and deacons who lead us at the Lord's table in, in prayer, if we insisted that it had to be an elder and a deacon who did that, we would be 
kind of creating a new kind of priesthood. And we don't insist on that. Anybody who knows and loves the Lord, anybody who's in fellowship with his people, anyone who regularly leads us in prayer, is as qualified as anyone else to lead us as we gather together to give thanks, as we will this evening, for the body of the Lord Jesus broken and the blood shed at the cross. Another implication of this is that I'm very thankful for all the pastoral care that's exercised in the church by the church. I think as a church, we already get this. It's such an encouragement to me. I'm only here a few months, but I, I really think HBC gets and understands this. But let me underline it, what I think we already see, that no one in the church family has more influence with the Lord as they pray with you and for you than anyone else. So if one day one of the elders pops in to see you and you're in hospital and, and, and reads a portion of the scriptures and prays with you, and then the next day a church member pops in to see you and reads the scriptures and, and prays with you, both are equally effective. Nobody has, a, has more influence in heaven than anybody else. No priests who have that special in with God. No. Priesthood of all believers. Elders have a responsibility to make sure the church is a caring place and that people are cared for, but they have no more power as they pray with you and for you than any other sincere believer in the Lord Jesus. And that's why I'm also a bit cranky. And I've admitted this to you this morning. I'm cranky about calling the building the church and so on. And I, I might be taking it too far. I'm also a bit cranky about the title reverend. I've never owned or worn a clerical collar. I've no patience for the kind of clergy laity distinction. I don't want anything that creates a false two-level kind of spirituality. I was reading Matthew 23 last week where Jesus was warning his followers about the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders in Israel. Listen as I read a few verses to you. Hear how... The Lord Jesus points us to a very flat structure among those who follow him. So he says in verse 5 of Matthew 23 of these scribes and Pharisees, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They love the place of honor at feasts, the best seats in the synagogue, and greetings in the marketplace, and being called rabbi by others. But says Jesus, you're not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Brothers and sisters, that's who we are. We're a family. We have different but complementary roles. But we have in the Lord Jesus one great high priest and saviour and king and shepherd and father. And we don't need anyone else taking these roles. And for someone to try to do so and for a church to think that they would need someone else to do so is an abomination. It's the opposite of the gospel. 
when the Lord Jesus died, bearing the penalty of our sin on the cross, instantly on the other side of Jerusalem, the, con the curtain was torn in two in the temple. Torn in two from top to bottom. Instantly the need for special buildings and special priesthood was abolished. By his death in our place. What we've been looking at today is the reality of the church of Jesus Christ shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are the holy place in which God is present. We are the holy priests with whom God is pleased. As we live our lives for his honor and glory 24-7. Bringing him the praise and the worship he deserves. Let's pray together. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our God and Father, Amidst all the potential for confusion and misunderstanding and misspeaking and mishearing, would you please guard the true seed of your word? And would it mold us and shape us? Would the gospel shape our church and our lives? And if there's someone this morning who has listened and has not yet known the power of the cross in their lives. Grant that even now, verse 4 would happen, that they would come to him, the living stone, and put their faith and trust in him. We ask it for the glory of your great name.